Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Driscoll's. Only the finest berries. Hello, young chefs, and welcome back to Mystery Recipe. I'm Molly Birnbaum, Editor-in-Chief of America's Test Kitchen Kids. And I'm Mitzi. Admit Molly's right hand gal and co host on the show. Every week on Mystery Recipe, we'll be talking about the fun, fantastical, and fascinating sides of a different kitchen ingredient. Plus, at the end of the season, we'll use all the ingredients to cook a mystery recipe together. Can you guess what it is yet? So far, we know it will contain salt, heavy cream, butter, and sugar. Starting to get closer to a guess, listeners? We've got a very sweet episode for you all today. That's right. It's day two of Sugar Week. First up, our intern Kyle is back for a sugar-coated round of tricky trivia. Then Chad is here with someone from the Ojibwe tribe in Aska Grown-Up. And finally, Andrea is back to see how sugar measures up in how-to time. Let's get right to it, listeners, to the theme song! Tastes good. Ooh. Puns can't wait. It's time for some learning. Mystery recipe. Hi, Mitzi. Hi, Molly. Kyle, good to see you, friend. Missed ya. Why's that? Things not dull enough around here without me? <laughs> Heyo, back with the butter knife puns. Sorry. I'll try to spread them around a bit more next time. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, wait, that was one too, wasn't it? It was. It was. Huh. Do I know any good oven mitt puns? Let me think. I don't know, Mitzi. Do you? I think I might need to go do some brainstorming. I'll be back. Sounds good, Mitzi. And while you do that, it's time for Tricky Trivia. I can handle that. Listeners, here's how we play Tricky Trivia. I will tell you a fact about our theme ingredient for the week, sugar, and Kyle here will help you decide whether that fact is true or false. Sound good, Kyle? Sounds great! All right, here is your first one. When Europeans first started using sugar, they used it as medicine. So, Kyle, is this true or false? Was sugar first used as medicine by Europeans? Oh, that's a tough one right out the gate. I'm sure listeners can agree. I definitely don't think we use sugar as medicine now, I do know that throughout history, people have used spices and herbs as medicine. So it wouldn't really be a stretch to consider that maybe they use sugar as medicine too. Plus, what's that thing Mary Poppins used to say? A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down? I'm going to say true, Molly. You are so close, actually, Kyle, but the answer is technically false. This is a very tricky one, though. Europeans didn't use sugar as medicine, but they did use it as an ingredient to help disguise the bitterness of different medicines. The first large shipment of sugar came to England in 1319, but even earlier than that, it was starting to come into Europe from Arab countries. Sugar was used as an ingredient in medicinal candies, but not because it made people feel any better. It hid the bitterness of other ingredients in the medicine, making it easier to take, just like Mary Poppins said. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Anyways, those medicinal candies sound a lot like a cough drop. 
Exactly, Kyle. I was just about to say that even today, we find similar medicinal candies, such as cough drops. Okay, ready for your next question? Indeed I am. True or false, the current world record for most sugar cubes balanced on someone's chin in a single stack is 53 sugar cubes. What do you think, Kyle, is the current world record for a stack of sugar cubes balanced on someone's chin, 53 cubes? Oh, I actually know this one. Really? No, not at all. I just wanted to see what you'd say. I was definitely surprised. Anyway, I have no clue what the answer is. I mean, 53 sounds like a lot, but not too big of a number for a world record. Also, I feel like 53 is a really random number to come up with. Why 53? Why not 47 or 68? What do you think, listeners? I'm going to go with true. The world record for the most sugar cubes balanced on someone's chin is 53. Unfortunately, that one was actually false. Ah, that's fair. This one was kind of a shot in the dark. How many is the record for? Actually, is there even a record for it at all? The trickiest thing would be if there was no record, because it is a pretty silly record. It is definitely a silly record, and it is a real record. The current Guinness World Record for most sugar cubes balanced on the chin in a single stack is... 17 cubes. Huh, that feels very doable. It does, but I wonder if it's harder than it sounds. That's true. Being a butter knife without a chin, I can't exactly try this out myself. But I do wonder if any listeners at home could break the record. That sounds like a challenge. Speaking of challenges, I've got one last question for you, Kyle. True or false? Sugar is only meant to be used in sweet dishes, like desserts or baked goods. So, Kyle, do you think this is true or false? Is sugar only meant to be used in sweet dishes? Ah, uh, this one is easy, Molly. I listen to past seasons of the show on my bike ride to work, and I know all about your big words like only. Is that so, Kyle? Yep. Whenever you use the word like only, it makes that fact really hard to be true. Any ingredient has lots of uses. For something to only be used in a dessert or sweet dish would be highly unlikely. For that reason, listeners, I think the answer to this question is false. That's exactly right. Nice work. Thanks, Molly. So what other kinds of dishes might sugar be used in? Well, some of our listeners might remember all the way back in season one, we talked about using sugar in a pasta sauce. Lots of sauces use sugar not to make the sauce sweet, but to help cut or soften spicy or salty flavors. Things like tomato sauce or the sauce used in pad thai, for example, use sugar to taste a little less spicy or a little less salty. Sugar can also be great on roasted vegetables or when making steak. What? Absolutely. Sugar can help encourage what's called the Maillard reaction, that delicious browning of foods that give it wonderful, rich flavors. Next time you're making roasted broccoli or green beans, try tossing them in a little bit of sugar first. It won't make them sweet, but it will add some depth of flavor. That sounds amazing. Thanks, Molly. I can't wait to give that a try. Molly, Kyle, I am back. Nice work there, Kyle. Sounded like that went great. It did. Thanks, Mitzi. Hey, can we hear some of those oven mitt puns you were working on? Uh, of course you can. Uh, let's see here. Hello, friends. Chad! How are you today, Chad? I'm doing great. Thanks, Molly. Very excited for today's interview in Ask a Grown-Up. Well, I guess my puns can wait then. 
Who are you talking to today, Chad? Well, today I am talking to Eric Reddix from an Ojibwe tribe, also known as the Chippewa Indians. They are a tribe of indigenous people in what's now often referred to as Minnesota. Sorry, Chad. I'm a little confused, though. I thought someone who is Indian was from India, like Cal Moody, who we met last week to talk about ghee. That's true, Mitzi. Usually when we say Indian, we are referring to someone who is from the country of India, which is in Asia. But for a long time in this country, people used the word Indian to refer to indigenous or native people. And a lot of indigenous tribes and nations might still choose to use the word Indian to refer to themselves, like Eric's community, the Saginaw Chippewa Indian tribe. That's right. Saying American Indian, Indian, Native American, Native, or Indigenous could all be appropriate ways to describe Native people. What's most important is that you ask the person or a group of people you're talking to or about what they prefer. People will have a preference, and it's important to refer to people the way they identify or how they refer to themselves. Huh. There are lots of different indigenous communities, tribes, and nations. I guess it makes sense that they are all different from each other. There are indigenous peoples all over the world. According to a group called the United Nations, it is estimated that there are more than 370 million indigenous people spread across 70 countries worldwide. But how can one word describe so many people who are from so many different places? Well, indigenous people are not all the same. It's a big word that includes lots and lots of different people. One way the United Nations commonly identifies indigenous peoples is as the descendants of people who lived in a country or a geographical region before people of different cultures or ethnic origins arrived and tried to take over. Basically, someone who lived on a land that was taken over by someone else. It's the new arrivals, or settlers, that try to become the ones in charge through conquest, occupation, settlement, or other means, many of which were violent and caused a lot of harm. We learned a little bit about this in Season 3. That sounds like colonization. That's right, Mitzi. Colonization is when one country attempts to take over and control the land of another. They come uninvited, live on the land without permission, steal its resources, and make rules the indigenous peoples who are already living there must follow, if they're allowed to stay at all. Unfortunately, this has been tried many times in many different places throughout history. And so there are indigenous peoples all over the world, such as the Lakota in the United States, the Inuit and Aleutians of the Arctic, the Sami of Northern Europe, and the Maori, or Aboriginal people of New Zealand and Australia, just to name a few, and the Ojibwe tribes in Minnesota. So, now that we know that there are different types of indigenous people all over the world, and they all choose different ways to identify or refer to themselves, let's get back to Ask a Grown-Up. It's going to be a fun one today. We are going to be learning all about how the Ojibwe community in Grand Portage, Minnesota, makes maple sugar. I can't wait to share this story with all of you. Neither can I, Chad, but we are going to have to wait just a little bit longer because it's time for a quick word from our sponsors. Grownups, these ads are for you. I want to tell you about our sponsors, the National Mango Board. 
Mangoes are one of the most flavorful and versatile fruits in the world. Not only are they a tangy and sweet snack, you can really have them whichever way you want. Make mango toast, mango guacamole, or fresh mango lassi popsicles just in time for summer. Did you know mangoes have over 20 vitamins and minerals and are rich in vitamin C, which helps build and maintain a strong immune system? So having a super fruit like a mango helps you be a super you. Grownups, discover more about mangoes at mango.org slash mystery recipe. Hey, grownups, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Green Pan. Their Valencia cookware collection is the winner of ATK's Best in Test for Ceramic Nonstick Skillets. Green Pan is constantly working to live up to their name. They use recycled aluminum. Their factory runs on 30% solar energy. They recycle their wastewater and are focused on reduced carbon emissions. Greenpan has won dozens of awards for their dedication to the environment and is always working to make healthy products better for everyone. Grown-ups, to learn more about Greenpan, visit them at greenpan.us. Plus, get a special 30% off your purchase for our America's Test Kitchen audience with code ATK30. That's ATK30. And we're back. Take it away, Chad. Thanks, Molly. So today, we are talking about how folks from an Ojibwe tribe in Minnesota make something called maple sugar. In order to learn more, I found someone who knows all about it. Um, all right. Well, can I start by asking you to introduce yourself for us, please? Yeah. I'm going to introduce myself in the Ojibwe language, which is what I teach up here in Grand Portage, Minnesota. Buju, Miskoanung Indijnikaz, Migazi Indu Dame. Odawa Zaga Igening and Dunjaba, Gichi Onagoming in Da, Miigwech, meet you. And what I said there was uh, my name is uh, Miskoanung, which is my Ojibwe name. My English name is Eric Reddix. I'm of the Eagle Clan. Um, in the Ojibwe uh, culture, we have clans and uh, we treat them like family. And my clan is the Eagle Clan. I'm originally from an Ojibwe community in Northwest Wisconsin, Lacoudere. And right now I live in Grand Portage, Minnesota, which is another Ojibwe community about four hours away from where I'm from. And that's where I teach and uh, teach at the Oshki Ogamag uh, Community School. I started by asking Eric what maple sugar is. Well, maple sugar is the boiled down product, the processed product of uh, maple sap. And the sap is obviously, it's it's what powers up the tree. It's the lifeblood of the tree. It gives the tree leaves. It, uh, as I said, helps it grow. And uh, everything a tree goes through every year. So we take that sap, uh, which has a little bit of a sweetness when it comes off of the tree, very faint, very mild sweetness. And we boil it down about 35 gallons of sap to one gallon of maple syrup. And if we process it to maple sugar, we boil it down even further. Many of our listeners might be familiar with maple syrup, which, like Eric just told us, is the concentrated or boiled down sap of a maple tree. Maple sugar is maple syrup that's been boiled down even more. 
right? You just keep it boiling. And then, and then there's a point when you start working with it and you start processing it. Historically, Ojibwe people, what they would do is they would have kind of a hollowed out uh, basswood log and they would just with wood utensils, just work that kind of really condensed, uh, lower moisture maple syrup and just work it. And, and it would basically process that into what we would kind of recognize as granulated sugar. Actually, a better comparison would be brown sugar. Like we learned last week, many foods are originally born out of necessity. Maple sugar is no different. One of its benefits is that it can last a long time before going bad. That was really the struggle, right? Before uh, refrigeration is finding food that would be preserved and would provide nutritional elements. And that's why maple sugar was really the cornerstone of their diet back then. Prior to about 100, 120 years ago, Ojibwe people really didn't make syrup. They would exclusively make sugar. And so, and they use that in all kinds of seasoning, not just limited to like how we use maple syrup today, but they would use it more on things like fish and things like that. In fact, we have historical accounts about how fur traders and other traders really had a hard time trading salt in Ojibwe communities because Ojibwe's didn't like salt. They preferred sugar on like their fish and their meat and their venison even. One of the reasons Eric knows so much about maple syrup and maple sugar is because they make it at the school where he teaches. We have about um, 30 students or so from the Grand Portage Reservation here. And uh, the school goes kindergarten through sixth grade. And uh, the sugar bush really is kind of a foundational experience as far as, you know, our school year. The end result, I think we had about four or five gallons last year that we gave out to families and, you know, students took home and provide a little bit for our uh, elders in the community that wanted some maple syrup and couldn't get out to the sugar bush. So yeah, it's just a great, uh, it's a great experience. Couldn't agree more. Back to you, Molly. Thanks, Chad. And thanks again to Eric Reddix for that lesson in maple sugar. So Kyle, is there anything else you want to tell us today about sugar and how it relates to climate change? Well, I'm glad you asked, Mitzi. There are a ton of things I could say about sugar and climate change, but I'm actually feeling sort of inspired by Chad's interview to talk instead about how indigenous peoples and climate change activism intersect. Interesting. Listeners, we talked last episode about an intersection being where two things meet. And so, Kyle, where do indigenous peoples and climate change activism meet? Well, Molly... Indigenous peoples will often be, and sometimes already are, some of the first people to really feel the effects of climate change because of how some indigenous tribes live in close relationship with the environment and its resources. It is important to mention that not all indigenous peoples live this way, of course. Many indigenous folks around the world live much like you or I do. Right. But some indigenous peoples choose to follow traditional ways of living close to the land. According to the United Nations, some indigenous people in the Arctic region like the Inuit depend on hunting for polar bears, walrus, seals, and caribou, fishing and gathering, not only for food, but also for money to support themselves. In the Amazon, forests are being cut down, which is causing droughts and then large fires in the western Amazon region, which is having a huge effect on the lives of some of the indigenous peoples in the region, like the Yanomami. Even here in New England, many tribes can't fish or drink from the waters in their area due to salt pollution from road runoff and mining. Ugh, that sounds terrible, Kyle. It is, and it's important to learn about so that we can know the urgency of how important it is to try and help. 
It's sometimes hard to learn about big problems that are happening far away, though. There's not a ton I can do right now to protect hunting grounds in the Arctic, for example, but that's why I always recommend starting small and learning about those around you. What do you mean, Kyle? Well, I just mean by being a good neighbor, Molly. Learn about the history of the land you live on, wherever that may be, and see what issues other people who live near you are facing, such as the lack of access to lakes and clean water the Onondaga people in our region are struggling with. Grown-ups, you can learn more about the Onondaga Nation, their vision for a clean Onondaga Lake, and why it's such an important topic for their people and culture by visiting www.onondaganation.org. That's O-N-O-N-D-A-G-A nation.org. I will most certainly do that. And listeners, I challenge you to look up what Native communities are your neighbors. Learn about their history and see what issues they are facing. I think that's some excellent advice. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah, Kyle, thank you so much for sharing all of this. Of course. So, Mitzi, oven mitt puns. Yes, I can't wait to finally share these. I've been working really hard on them, and... Hello? Andrea. Hi, Andrea. Hi, friends. Anybody ready for some how-to time? Uh, That's fine. It's totally fine. Not a big deal. Puns can wait. It's time for some learning. Andrea is an associate editor here at America's Test Kitchen Kids. That means she works on developing recipes and experiments for our cookbooks and things like the Young Chef's Club boxes. You can find out more about all that fun stuff by going to atkkids.com. We want you to practice your cooking techniques while you're our intern. So every week, I am going to teach you something new to up your arsenal of kitchen skills. Yes, that last conversation got a little serious. I think it will be great to switch gears a little and focus on some cooking skills. So Andrea, what are we going to learn about today? Today, we're going to learn about how to properly measure different sugars. Huh. What's up, Mincy? No good? Well, it's just that... We already learned about using the dip and sweep method for measuring dry ingredients in season two. Our listeners at home probably remember that because Parker would always go, dip and sweep. Amazing Parker impression, Mitzi. You sound just like them. Ah, why thank you. But Mitzi, I wasn't here for that lesson and maybe Andrea has some new twist on dip and sweep, like dip and swirl and sweep. Well, we are going to cover a little bit of old ground here, but most of today's lesson is about the difference between white and brown sugar and why we have different ways of measuring them. Oh, well, that sounds great. I never should have doubted you. I'm going to go practice my dip and twirl and sweep. I'll see you later. Mitzi, that's not a real thing. And she's gone. Anyway, back to our lesson. What do you know about the differences between brown and white sugars, Kyle? I thought the only difference between white and brown sugar was the color. Well, it's true that they do have different colors, but do you know why? I want to say food coloring, but I have a sneaky feeling that that's not right. Your sneaking feeling is correct. Brown sugar doesn't get its color from food coloring. Brown sugar is actually white sugar with molasses added to it. Really? Wow. Why would you want to add one sweet thing to another like that? Molasses adds a warm, slightly spicy flavor to the sugar, but it also adds moisture. When brown sugar is added to a cookie recipe, for example, the cookie winds up having both extra flavor from the molasses and a moister, chewier texture. Is that why some recipes call for brown sugar and white sugar? Exactly. 
each sugar is bringing something different to the party. And cookies are most definitely a party. Wow, that's so cool. Okay, but that doesn't explain why we have to twirl when we measure brown sugar. Again, that part wasn't real. You just kind of made that up. How we measure white and brown sugar is different because of the added moisture. Have you ever noticed how brown sugar is stickier and clumpier than white sugar? Yeah, it kind of sticks to itself. That's exactly right. The added molasses gives brown sugar a different texture than white sugar. So when we measure it, we have to pack it into the measuring cup instead of just scooping it up. When you scoop brown sugar into a measuring cup, it might not be totally full, even if it looks full. The sugar sticks to itself a bit, meaning we have to push it down with our hands to make sure the measuring cup is evenly full. Listeners, you're welcome to try and pack down white sugar as well, but it won't really pack. It's too dry without the added molasses. Oh, okay. So that's what it means when a recipe says one cup packed brown sugar. That's right. It means you should scoop up one cup full of sugar, pack it down with your hands, and add more if necessary until you have one level cup, just like you'd want with the dip and sweep method. Okay, I'll definitely be doing that the next time I make cookies. One last thing to remember, Kyle, is that if you have a kitchen scale, weighing out your dry ingredients, especially for baking, is always the most accurate method. Here at America's Test Kitchen, we found that one cup of packed brown sugar weighs seven ounces. Got it. That was the best. As always, thanks again, Andrea. No problem, Kyle. See you all next week. Well, friends, I think this means we are about out of time for today's episode. That's right. And whew, what an episode it was. Mitzi, before we go, I think we have time for some oven mitt puns. Hooray! All right, listeners, I hope these puns aren't too heavy-handed. Ha! Ah, because you know, I'm all thumbs. I have to add mitt. I mean, should I quilt comedy altogether? Are my puns too hot to handle? Ah, I'm on a casserole now! Nice one. Those were excellent, Mitzi. Listeners, we'll be back with another sugar-sweet episode next time. We'll try and stay chill in our pressing questions segment, followed by some familiar pet pals in our wild card. And remember, at the end of the season, we'll be using all of our ingredients in a very special mystery recipe to cook together. Can you guess what it is yet? If you love mystery recipe, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss an episode. And feel free to leave us a review. We love reading them. Until then, keep, keep on, on cooking. cooking. Mystery Recipe is hosted by me, Molly Birnbaum, and I am Roasted Salted Cashews. Chad Chennai is our writer and producer. He is a big barrel of cheese puffs. Andrea Vobjin is a white cheddar cheese it and Katie O'Hara is a goldfish cracker, and they are both contributing writers on our show. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Chester Guazda, an apple, and Matt Boynton, a salt and vinegar potato chip of ultraviolet audio. Jonathan Roberts composed our theme music and his popcorn. Our director of post-production is Jen Margolis. She is a Twix. Our director of production is Diane Knox, who is also salsa. Fact-checking by Julia Arwin, a nacho cheese Dorito. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher, and she's a spicy pickle. 
Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. He's a tortilla chip. David Nussbaum is our CEO, and he's a chocolate-covered pretzel. Special thanks to our senior science editor, Paul Adams, executive editor, Kristen Sargianis, executive food editor, Susanna McFerrin, art director, Gabby Hamanoff, deputy food editor, Afton Cyrus, associate editors, Andrea Vavjan, Katie O'Hara, and Tess Berger, editorial assistant, Julia Arwin, photo test cook, Ashley Stoyanov, and test cook, Faye Yang. Special thanks to Eric Reddix. Dio Gandhi was our sensitivity reader and consultant for this episode. This episode featured the voices of Kira O'Sullivan and Brian Green. Thanks again to our sponsors, Driscoll's, the National Mango Board, and Green Pan. Mystery Recipe is a production of America's Test Kitchen Kids. Molly, are there any editor-in-chief puns that you know? You know, there really aren't. I'm sort of like an editor-in-chef, though. Ayo, that one's a keeper. How about, who's in charge of these puns anyway? Or you could say, I'm only an editor-in-chief during the day. At night, I'm an editor-in-sleep. <laughs> Hi, grown-ups. I wanted to tell you a little bit about our newsletter. If you love the fun food content we share on Mystery Recipe, then sign up today for our ATK Kids newsletter to receive even more recipes, activities, and stories from me straight to your inbox. As a mom of two, I always try to include things that are important to my family, and it's a great way to hear about all the new things we are cooking up at ATK. Plus, every new email added will be entered for a chance to win three free ATK Kids books for toddlers through teens. We'll draw 10 winners every month while the promotion lasts. And we have some great books available all the time. Head to atkkids.com newsletter to sign up today for your chance to win. Thank you.